pastor here at Hope Church, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what's going on at Hope other than what we're doing this morning. Because the life of a church is not just what happens on Sunday morning, but it's what happens throughout the entire week, right? Uh, believers come together and do things not just on Sunday, because that's not what Christ calls us to do, but we are the church each and every day when we wake up and when we go to bed. And so we've got a lot of different activities going on, but I just want to highlight a few. If you uh, miss something or want to find out more information about them, you can always look them up on the portal, which is www.hopeisrael.org. Uh, but I'm just going to volunteer a couple things. Blueprint Kitchen is still looking for volunteers. If you need more information about that, Jackie Kay is in the building. Yeah, She's raising her hand so you can check her out and see what, uh, what information she can give you more on what needs to happen there. Um, Hope Church Fun Kids, uh, let me try that again, Hope Church Hope for Kids Fun in the Sunday is coming up on August 9th, that is a Wednesday. What we're basically going to do is we're going to have a bunch of kids come over, uh, if you know any kids in your neighborhood that are interested, uh, ask their parents first, it's always a good plan, uh, but uh, uh, you know, bring them over and, and uh, check out what's going on, we're going to talk a little bit about who Jesus is, we're going to have a lot of fun, going to have good food, and then at the end we're going to have some food for the parents when they pick them up. And so if you're interested in volunteering for any of that or finding out more information, you can ask um, Jen, who is in the back. So you can't ask, uh, she can't raise her hand. She might be raising her hand back there, but you can't see her. So uh, last thing is uh, we just want to point out a couple of changes that have happened to ministries over the past couple months. Um, a number of people have been doing ministry faithfully for years and years and years at a time. And what needs to happen every so often is people take a break. You know, Jesus calls a sabbatical. That's what the Sabbath is. That's what Sunday is. So uh, we call it a sabbatical, and a number of people have taken sabbatical this year. Allison Smith is is taking a sabbatical from hospitality. Uh, Debbie Lawler is taking a sabbatical from Hope for Kids. Lois Drew is taking a sabbatical from worship, and they've all we've all got replacements in place for those. Uh, Jackie Kay is doing hospitality. Jen Townsend is doing uh, uh, Hope for Kids, and I'm helping out with the worship part. I'm taking Lois's Lois's place. I'm not as good as Lois, but you know. Uh, you have to bear with me through the next year or so. Anyway, uh, just next time you see those, those people that are taking a sabbatical, thank them for their work. Thank them for all that they've done. They've been serving faithfully for years and years without a break, and that is a hard thing to do. Um, but uh, we want to encourage them and give them an opportunity to rest. With that, I'm going to invite Pastor Tom to come forward, and he will finish us out. that well good morning. good morning welcome to hope i'm pastor tom it's good to have you with us as we worship god together today uh pastor darden did you say not as good as low as true that was an unnecessary clarification <laughs> totally true You, you expect me to disagree with it? No, that's not going to happen. All right, well, I'm glad you're here. Um, why don't we get all of the important people together? If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you down for our children's chat at this time before you go off to Hope for Kids. How are y'all doing today? You feeling good? You look good. All right. Life is good. Um, what are some of the things that God wants for you? What does he want you to have in your heart? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Love. Okay. He wants you to have love. What else does he want you to have in your heart? Love's a good answer. There's got to be something else he wants in there. Kindness. Very good. All right. What else? Anything else he wants you to have in your heart? Jesus, always the right answer to children's chat. All right, love, kindness, Jesus, that's a pretty good start. Anything else you can think of that God wants you to have in your heart? Obedience? Ooh, what? 
Patience, forgiveness, joy. Okay. All right, I've got one, but you're going to have to listen to this Bible verse to hear it. When you hear it, this is what God wants you to have in your heart. I want you to, like, let me know. This is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Let me try that again. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. What does God want you to have? And now, little children, <laughs> abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Wow. It's okay. Confidence. Very good. What does God want you to be confident in? His love for you. How do you become confident in God's love? By showing God's love. Okay? So the more you show God's love, the more confident you will be in how much God loves you. So it's sort of a building process. Does God love you? Yes. Are you confident of that? I hope so. And how do you become more confident that God loves you? By loving others, by showing the love that God showed to you, to the people around you. When you do that, it makes you more confident in the love of God. All right. So what does God want for you? He wants you to be confident. How do you become confident in his love? By showing his love to others. Does that work? Do you have to show God's love to others in order for God to love you? No. God loves you no matter what. But if you want to become more confident in how much he loves you, show his love to those around you. Can I pray for you guys? All right. Dear God, thank you for these precious children, for the gift that they are to our church. And we pray your blessing over them as they study more of your word and hope for kids today. Uh, lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them and build their confidence in you, in your love, in your strength, in your relationship with them. Grow them, guide them. We pray your blessing over them in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Y'all have a great time and hope for kids. Yeah. <laughs> and Lord, we lift up Lois True, their teacher this morning. We pray your blessing upon her and her helper. <laughs> your grace, your patience, your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good, good. Um, why don't we pray? as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning. Will you join me in prayer? God, our Father, we pause before you now as we open your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us in the ways that we need to hear your voice this morning. Lord, grow us uh, more and more into the men and women of God that you created us to become. Fill us with your spirit and lead us to a deeper understanding of your grace by engaging in your word this morning. As we prepare to do that, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. Lord, we give you those relationships in our lives that are strained. And we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift to you those whom we know and love 
who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we pray you would pour out your healing mercies upon your people. We pray especially for Judy Harrell as she recovers from surgery this week. We just pray your healing upon her, that you would restore her to full health and function. And Lord, we lift to you those who grieve, and we pray your comfort over their hearts. We lift to you uh, this country and our leaders at every level of government elected and appointed. And we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform, and we pray that you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. And Lord, we lift to you those who've returned home, changed as a result of the service and sacrifices they made for our freedoms. We pray that you would pour out your grace upon them, your healing upon them, mind, body, and soul. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world. We pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that your word would continue to go forth uh, through the mouth of your church and that it would not return to you empty. We pray your blessing over those churches that we are connected to through our denomination and our missions giving. Uh, we lift to you Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas, um, our sister church in Camajuanee, Cuba, Apache in Maryland, Quesada in Havana, Cuba, and we lift to you, uh, Robbie and Joyce Hand, as they continue to serve your work and efforts in Beirut, Lebanon, and we lift to you, um, Monica and Benjamin Bailey, as they serve you in the Middle East. We just pray your blessing over all of those projects that you are engaged with in faraway places, and we pray for those church plants that are going on in the state of Texas in our context, and New Braunfels, Austin, and Dallas. We just pray your blessing over those young works. We pray you would be with us now as we open your word, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's all good. Okay. So we are in a series of messages uh, of late looking at the last four letters in the New Testament before you get to the book of Revelation. Those are 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then, hey, Jude, yeah. Um, and so we've, we've uh, looked at some of those other letters, and now we're kind of just working our way through the letter of 1 John. And as I've said, uh, first, the letter of 1 John is really more of a sermon that is, has been written by the Apostle John, we believe, and sent to a group of churches around the town of Ephesus in what is modern-day Turkey. And John had labored there as a pastor for several years, uh, we believe, and he's now writing back to these churches that are going through all kinds of growing pains. And just to get a little bit of context, uh, if you've been with us throughout the series, you probably already know this, but just bear with me. Um, at this time in history, it is illegal to assemble as Christians. Christians were uh, charged under the Roman authorities with the charge of atheism, if you can believe that, uh, because they denied the deity of Caesar. And because of that denial of Caesar's deity, they were guilty when charged with atheism if they did not deny Christ and affirm the deity of Caesar. And so they would be rounded up and all kinds of bad things could happen. And so churches didn't meet the way we meet. They met in houses, in smaller groups, and each house would have had someone in, in that house who was sort of in charge of, of leading the worship time, the study of the word, etc., for that small assembly of Christians. They would have, we think, based on what we see in the, in the New Testament, they would have met on Sunday mornings, um, probably near sunrise, and they would have gathered, uh, as, they, as it's described by the Apostle Paul, on the first day, um, and they would have worshipped in very small, discreet communities. And John, the Apostle, is now writing uh, 
basically a sermon to these little churches that are all around, in and around the, the town of Ephesus. And the reason we have copies of these is because John was a big deal. He was the last of the surviving apostles that followed Jesus through his time on earth. And anything he wrote would have been copied and passed around to the various churches uh, throughout their you know, assemblies and times of worship, etc. What John had to say would have been very highly regarded in the early church. And so we still have some copies of his correspondence. Uh, Second John and Third John are very short and are very uh, narrowly aimed at two different problems that these churches were experiencing. Um, but First John is really, I think, the apostles' um, effort to give a sermon to these churches that he had been connected to, uh, sort of in abstentia. He was probably um, in exile at the time he wrote this, and good Lord, all right, drop number two. So that's the context, the historical context into which John was writing. And these young churches were still trying to figure out all the details of their Christianity, but in the context of needing to keep their meetings discreet and undetected by uh, others. And so John writes and he tries to define and articulate and I've, I've described his style of writing as very cyclical. He'll, he'll take a theme. He loves contrast between light and dark and truth and lie. And all kinds of contrasts are used in his, his writing. But he'll circle just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as he works these themes in and out of what he's saying to these young churches. And so today, we come to the last uh, few verses in chapter 2 of the book we call 1 John, and I'm going to read those to you, and then we're going to discuss them. Now, before I read them, I'm just going to tell you there's some weird stuff in here, okay? We're going to try to explain it. However, uh, I sometimes get, like, focused on my outline, and I forget to explain things. So at the end of, if you have one of the bulletins today, at the very end is the word questions. I want you to ask me questions when we're done. If I forget to cover something, if there's something in here, especially one of the weird things that you don't understand or you want clarification on, please make a note, ask me a question when we're done, and I'll try to come back and cover it. So keep an eye out for the weird stuff. If I don't explain it, bring it back up later, and we'll deal with it. Roger that. All right, here we go. So I'm going to read from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and then we will start to unpack what's here. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise 
that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right. So, the first thing that jumps out from this passage is very simply right there in the first couple of verses where we see this idea of the last hour. So, how do we understand this? Was John saying that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime? No. What was he saying? John was trying to convey to his followers the urgency with which we should live as Christians, or perhaps better put, the expectancy with which we should live. To live expectantly does not mean that we think Jesus is coming back today. It just means that we live in the expectation of his return. What does this mean, the last hour? Um, You need the rest of the New Testament and much of the Old Testament to fully unpack this. But in general, here's what it means. That at some point in human history, God will bring all of what we currently experience to an end in, in terms of our existence in this physical realm. There will be, after that last hour, a recreation of a new heavens and a new earth, and our spiritual beings will re-inhabit a physical existence in the presence of God for eternity. Until then, we live in the expectation of this last hour. We are in the last hour, if you will, for a variety of reasons not the least of which is that we don't know the number of our days on this earth. And so we want to live in in a way that is consistent with what God wants for us so that we move from here to there seamlessly. And we will talk about that more fully in a little while. But for now, the call is for us to live expectantly, to expect that Jesus will fulfill his word, that he will return to this existence, and when he does, he will make all things right. I I want you to think about all of the injustices in the world and how many of those injustices go undealt with, unresolved, unattended to, without consequence. Whatever injustices you have floating around in your mind right now, they may be personal or they may be global, whatever they are, Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right. This is part of living expectantly. We expect God to come back to render judgment, if you will, against injustice and to make the world right again. And our calling in living expectantly is to live in a way that not only reflects this idea of justice, but that brings it forth in the world, that we are to be people who care about right and wrong. We live with a sense of urgency. We live expectantly of this 
last hour. This means we are to be alert, aware, awake to what God wants for us. John talks about this very clearly, like it is the last hour. Wake up, look around. There's right, there's wrong, there's agents of right, and there are agents of wrong. He calls these agents of wrongs antichrists because, simply because they are cutting against the grain of grace that came through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to define what an antichrist is, and I use that word with a lowercase a, that it is one who denies or works against the person of Christ, or, and, or, or, and, <laughs> Christ and the Father. John sees these two entities as one. You cannot have one without the other, and he goes on to explicitly say that. You, you cannot deny the Son and have the Father. They are one God. And so, let's, let's keep moving. John wants us, as, as we live expectantly, to be alert. That is, to know who we are. You are a child of grace. There are many facets to this truth, not the least of which is that you did not earn your standing before God. So the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. No one is better than anyone else. No one is smarter. No one figured out, broke the code. You are the object of God's grace. His affection is demonstrated to you simply because of who he is, not because of anything you have done. Know that God loves you. You are a child of grace. And John goes on to say that you live with a biblical perception, an ability. So I'm going to take you to a word in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This is an odd translation. Um, there is a, the Greek word for knowledge is actually spelled with Greek letters the same way our word for knowledge is spelled with a silent letter before the N, and we, we get our word knowledge from the Greek word for knowledge. That's not the word that's here. The word that's here means that you've seen something. I would translate it as perception. You, because of the anointing of the Holy One upon you, this is the work of Christ upon you. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. I'll try to keep going. Um, but because the hand of God through Jesus Christ has redeemed you, has renewed you, has saved you, has done its work in you, you now have a spiritual capacity to perceive. This is, this is what the Bible means when it talks about discernment, that you, the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Christ, lives inside of you. When you open your Bible, you have the ability to see what God wants you to see there. So, how do I want to say this? You do not need me. My objective is to work myself out of a job. But, like a dentist, it's not going to happen. <laughs> right? We all need each other. But, the idea is that the same spirit that inhabits my heart because of the sacrifice Christ made for my redemption inhabits your heart because of the sacrifice he made for your redemption. And so, here we are, complete equals. So then why are you listening to me? Oh, it's a great question. Um, and and here's, here's what, here's what the, the, the New Testament sort of sets up. There was this group of followers that spent three years with Jesus. They got to know him on a level that other people didn't have the privilege of knowing him. He was preparing them, training them, equipping them to lead others in their relationships with Christ. 
when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he left these bumbling people in charge of his church. We're still here, right? I, I am not an expert. I did, I did spend, well, in my academic brilliance, I crammed a three-year seminary degree into four years, okay? But I did that because I believe God wanted me to do this. And if I'm going to do this, I owe it to you to actually learn the Greek and the Hebrew and to sit down and undergo the discipline of learning Scripture. So John, who effectively did a very similar thing in his three years with Jesus on earth, is now the pastor of this group, and he's writing to them, and the, the, the whole continuum goes on. But John identifies a very, very important truth that no pastor should ever lose sight of. The same spirit that gives me the ability to perceive scripturally is inside of you. So when you hear something from God's word, you should be able to sort of spiritually nod at its truth, to resonate with its, its value, its import, its significance. And that is really important so that anything I say to you, you actually have the ability to read your Bible and go, is he whacked? Is, he, is this healthy? Is this okay? And your spirit, which is the same spirit that inhabits every other Christian, should be able to say yes or no. You have been given that ability. We all, in, t in order to live expectantly, we need to be alert, know who we are, that we are the product of grace, and we are imbued with a certain biblical capacity to perceive, to see the truth. We're to be alert, know who we are, and we're to know what the deal breakers are. And these are what John calls antichrists, plural, with a small a. Those who deny salvation through Jesus Christ alone. This is perhaps the most controversial point of Christianity today, that we actually believe that there is one path to salvation, and it is through and only through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a wildly unpopular aspect of Christianity, but I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to be a servant of the word, and you are too. And if we are honest about what God says in his word, that's what we are left with, that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And insofar as the church, this is where it gets funny, insofar as the church is the body of Christ, we are the hope of the world. Ooh, ooh, that's terrifying. But here we are. And our job is to express God's love in such a way that his church grows, that the darkness shrinks in this world and his light shines. And so we're to know who we are and we're to know who the deal breakers are, that is those who deny salvation through Christ alone and those who deny the full humanity and divinity of Jesus. John says... The Son and the Father are one. They are the same entity. You cannot have one without the other. It took the church, so I mentioned at this time, Christianity is illegal. You can't get together with other Christians and openly discuss what you believe. Everyone's in hiding, sharing the gospel, spreading God's light, but doing it very cautiously because there's a very high price for going public. It's not until, uh, my, my years get a little fuzzy here, I think it was 312 AD that Emperor Constantine issued what was called the Edict of Milan. You can check my dates if you got a phone. Um, but it was around 312, and he basically just said, all religions are okay. 
It is, we're not going to kill anyone for not acknowledging my divinity. And <coughs> there are all kinds of theories as to why Constantine might have done this. Uh, we won't get into those. But it was 13 years later that the, the leaders of the, of the global church finally decided we need to get together. We need to figure out what we believe, what's going on. That is called the First Council of Nicaea. And at that council, uh, Santa Claus was there, by the way. That's not weird. Um, but at that council, it was determined that, our, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Those three persons are one God who eternally exists as three persons. This is a little bit cyclical. What they were doing was trying to decide this one question, who was Jesus? And John answers that question right here. He and the Father are the same entity. They are different persons. There's Father and Son, but they are one God. Here's why that's important. If, God, if Jesus is not fully eternally God, pre-existent eternally God, then he is a created being. And his sacrifice has then a very limited scale or scope for its application. One created being for another. Meaning, he could only die for one of us. You, you figure it out. Who's he going to die for? Right? If, on the other hand, he is eternally preexistent God of the universe, he can apply his sacrifice to an unlimited number of souls. If, however, he's not actually human, if he just appears to be human, he kind of like mystifyingly looks human, but he isn't truly human, his sacrifice cannot be applied to humans. If, however, he is fully human, as we are fully human, his sacrifice, his atonement, can redeem other humans. So theologically, 325 AD, the church leaders got together and they were like, he's got to be fully God. He's got to be fully human. I don't understand it, but if we're, if we're listening to what scripture is teaching, these both have to be true. And then John, a solid 200 and some odd years prior to this, is saying, here's how you discern those who affirm Christ and those who deny him. When they separate the Father and the Son from being fully one God, that's a problem. When they deny the, the redeeming power of the blood of Christ, that's a problem. And so here we have what that which to which we are to be awake in, that Jesus is fully God, fully human. And then John goes on to say that we are to not only be alert, but we're to stay plugged in. This is where he uses the word abide. Stay plugged in. Don't, don't go rogue. Don't try to make this a solo act. Um, stay plugged in to the word, to the church, to worship, to prayer. Stay plugged in. Being plugged in, abiding in Christ is the way we deepen our sense of grace. When my heart is gripped by... Hmm, how do I say this in church? By what a clod I am, okay? When, I, when I'm honest with myself about who I truly am, and I sit in that brokenness, I then am open to a more abundant grace. This idea that as we abide in Christ, as we look upon his righteousness and contemplate our own unrighteousness, we are, our, the soil of our hearts is better 
prepared to cultivate his grace. And so we abide. We are called to stay plugged in, to deepen our sense of his grace and to deepen our sense of hope. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Let me just try to unroll how important this is. Through Christ, you have access to eternity, to that future place where everything is made right, where there are no injustices, no sickness, no more death, no more loss, no more tears, except maybe tears of joy, but we'll leave those aside for now. You have access to that right here. So when you are moving through your week, and where is your difficulty? Where is your stressor? Where is that breaking point in your week? So I tried to roll this out. Is it at work? Is it at home? Is it in grief? Is it in your marriage, your divorce, your parents, your kids, your siblings, your friends? Is it in your physical health, your mental health? Wherever your stressor is, there is hope. You have been given access to that place in eternity where whatever is stressing you now will no longer be. Oy vey. Almost got interesting. We are called to abide in the love of Christ and thereby deepen our sense of grace and our sense of hope. In whatever circumstance we are in, there is hope. All will be made right by Christ in his time, sometimes in this lifetime, sometimes in eternity. But you need to understand and know that this life is not all there is. It's not. There is something beyond this which is sweeter and greater and purer and brighter. So, live expectantly and God wants you to live confidently. To know that you belong to God, that his truth dwells within you. And because the truth dwells within you, you are called to dwell in the truth. There's this cyclical thing that John does. He says, the truth abides in you. So abide in the truth. If you want to read more about that, Read the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. It's all about abiding in the vine. Um, But for now, you need to know that you belong to God. He has deposited the truth in your heart, and he has called you to dwell in his truth, to listen to his word discerningly in the Spirit, to check any biblical teaching against the Bible itself. That's your calling because you belong to God. To live confidently means to know to whom you belong and it means to know that you cannot lose your salvation. It is bewildering to me that people can read their Bibles and come away with a conclusion that you could actually lose your salvation. Here's, we'll we'll talk about, I mean, there's what Scripture says, but here's the logic of it, all right? If Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins, if he went to the cross with your name before him, 
who can take that away from the hand of God? No one, thank you. No one. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't make mistakes. So if he went to the cross for your redemption, you're hosed. You're coming into his grace whether you like it or not, right? If he died for your forgiveness, you're done. And no one can undo that, including you. Which means I could commit the most horrendous sin in the world. I hope I don't. But if I did, it would have no bearing on my salvation. Does that mean that God wants me to, to, to go out and do horrendous things? Of course not. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But to live confidently means to know that I am his forever. I can't mess this up. You can't trip me up. Well, you might trip me up, but you can't take me away from the heart of God. And I can't take you away from the heart of God. You belong to him. You cannot lose your salvation. Therefore, abide in him. He's got this. Come back to his heart. Come back to his presence. Come back to his love, his grace, his forgiveness. Return and return and return and return. Because that is what is ours in Christ. And that's what it means to abide in him, to stay close to him, and to become more like him. John talks about abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming there's there's two ways at which in which the when he appears can happen there's what the bible calls the second coming of christ um there's that appearance and then there's the appearance when we pass away from this life we are ushered into his presence here's what god wants for you he wants you to live in this life increasingly in such a way that when you cross over from here to there it's seamless you should not be in culture shock when you get to heaven, at least not in terms of your own self. We should be growing more and more into the men and women of God that he created us to be so that when we get to that day, it's like stepping off an escalator if you do it right. Um, you know, here's the good news. If you're looking the wrong way, and you get to the end of the escalator, it's going to hurt, but you're going to still be where you belong, right? No one can take that away from you. But what God wants for you is to, to grow into his grace in such a way that your last step here is much like your first step there. That you and I are called to abide in his grace, to grow more and more into that reality, which is our eternity. Let me uh, just read one scripture to reinforce something John is saying here. From John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
I'm open to questions. Did I miss anything? Antichrist, final hours. Come on, people. Anything from the passage. I'm listening. Yes, sir, Mr. Razel. Good. Yeah, so the, the, the question is, what does this last hour mean, and what, how, do we, how do we handle that, having Christianity on this earth for almost 2,000 years now? Um, that last hour has lasted a really long time. Uh, if John was talking about it in you know, the 80s AD, and we're still talking about it today, what, what does it mean? And, and I think the best way to understand that, and I think this is what John had in view, um, you know, John had seen the Christ live. He saw him die. He saw him buried. He saw him resurrected. He saw him ascend to, the, to heaven on the day of Pentecost. He saw all of that. He saw each of the other 11 disciples martyred. And he alone has lived to old age. Um, and here he is talking about the last hour. He, of all the biblical authors in the New Testament, has, has had the longest span of time over which that last hour was playing out. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's saying that he thinks the last hour is coming this week, this year, this century. I, I think what he's saying is that there is this last hour that we need to live in an in a active awareness of, an active engagement with, because it is in that last hour that we are transposed into that eternity that we need so desperately now. And so we have, um, it, it's like... <laughs> If I can use a, a, a silly metaphor, um, you know, it's sort of like a, a child with a blanket, and the blanket is maybe outside their crib, and all they can grab is the corner. But there's comfort there. It's not the whole blanket that we will spend eternity in. It's just the corner. It's just a grasp. It's a piece. It's a touch. It's a sense. And so we are to live in that last hour sense. That's where we get our access to that which transcends. Um, I think there are always have been Christians who are convinced that Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. Um, could he? Absolutely. Um, do I think he's done on this earth yet? Probably not. So I got to live in this tension of, like, live expectantly, but don't live foolishly, right? I, I don't need to sell everything and buy purple Nikes or whatever that freak did. Um, that was a Roger Applewhite <laughs> reference, if you didn't catch it. Um, but uh, I don't know. Did that, did that help? Okay.
uh, yeah, that will, so the follow-up was, I, you know, maybe I should read more of the book of Revelation, and I'll just tell you from my own experience, that will only confuse things. Um, uh, and weirdly, the guy that did the painting in the back of this room has the best understanding of the book of Revelation of anyone I've ever met. So I've read a lot of theologians on, the, on Revelation and what it means. The artist who, who thinks visually has the best grasp of Revelation of anyone I've ever met. Um, and it's, it's, uh, if, if you meet someone who thinks they can explain the book of Revelation to you, run. Um, but there is, there, is, there is meaning and value and importance in it for us. Um, it's just bizarre at the same time. So I, I'm not telling you not to read it. I'm just saying when you do, don't be discouraged if you don't understand all of it. There will be fruit there, but not anything like complete understanding. John. We do not know the day or the hour. That is correct. Tomorrow might be my last hour, whenever. So be ready, because there will be his coming into his presence at that moment or at that other moment when he breaks in and ends all this nonsense. All right. Other questions other than why is it so cold in here? Jack. Correct. Hmm. How does one know that they're saved? So this is the question that plagued many of the Puritans who founded this country. Uh, they came over here with all this great, rich theology and this understanding that one could never lose their salvation, and then they obsessed over whether or not they were among the elect. And I'll. I'll I think the simplest way to answer that question is this. If you're worried about it, that's a pretty good sign that you're, you're in. I, I don't think the people who don't recognize the deity and humanity of Christ are really all that concerned about their standing in a deity they don't recognize. So if you're worried, if, you're, if you think, if that thought occurs to you, you are probably thinking that because he matters to you and he could only matter to you if he had done his work in your heart of regeneration to awaken you to his will, his love, his grace, his work, and you're standing therein. Um, so I, I, I think that what God wants for us is not what the Puritans did, which was meant not all of them, but some of them became obsessed with whether or not they were among the elect. I think he wants you living in the confidence that you're saved, you're redeemed, and if you're worried about that at all, it's a pretty good sign that you're in. That's my best answer. Yes. Right. At, at, at times, well, you mean at, in some people? Yeah. Yeah. And and let's let's be let's be gracious, right? Like, I don't always bear the fruit of the gospel in my interactions with others, and and so people will have their moments where their fruit does not look like that of Christ, um, that still is not a disqualification. It's, it's, uh, it's either just their humanity emerging through some period of their life, or as John says here, they never were of his, fo of his fold, um, and that will be borne out but, but I don't think, he, God doesn't want you walking around terrified of whether or not you're in or you're out. He wants you to know he loves you, you're in, you're secure. Marsha, question. 
So the question is, why did God do the whole earth thing and create this physical existence and um, allow for the um, spinning out of control that we all experience? And so, <coughs> wow, that's a good question. So I'll try, I'll try to, we've, we've talked about some of this previously in this series. I'll, I'll try to make it quick. So this physical world and our physical bodies are a reflection of something spiritual. So the light that you see in this universe is a hint of what God is like. That his light, it, it brings forth understanding and meaning and perspective. Um, our, our bodies, our ability to see physically is a reflection of our ability to perceive spiritually he gave us these bodies because he partly because he is an infinite being that is incomprehensible in his fullness and he wants us to be able to relate to him to understand him to have a relationship and connection with him and so where god has this spiritual light and capacity for vision understanding comprehension etc he gives us these physical ways in which we can perceive um, or hear or touch or smell or taste or what have you. All of these things are reflective of a greater spiritual reality. And they help us as finite beings to have some grasp of who God is and what it means. Um, the other part of your question, why did he allow for all this chaos to ensue, um, is another question that has plagued, I guess, all religions for all of human time. Why is there suffering? And I think the answer to that is fairly um, simple, and that is that, that God wants us to understand the what's at stake in the battle between good and evil. And we, we can see through the, the, the darkness in this world the importance of his light. We can see in the face of hatred in humanity the need for the love of, of divinity. And so these contrasts make us more tuned in, more in need of his grace, his light, his love, his understanding, um, and the thing that terrifies me, if I can just be personal about it all, is none of the things that we fear are held as such in the heart of God. He doesn't fear what we fear. He has no fear of sin. He has no fear of darkness. He has no fear of death. He has no fear of suffering. He's not afraid. And he knows that his love is the greatest force in this universe. And so he just says, let it, bring it, come at me, bro. You know, bring it. Give the evil one license, let him wreak havoc, because I have something that I'm going to imbue into the heart of man that is greater than whatever the enemy can throw. I can't fully answer your question, but I hope that was at least helpful. All right. John. Okay. So if you Yeah. So John's observation that uh being put in a situation where we are deprived of something we were comfortable with um, helps us better appreciate that which we would not have appreciated without the loss. Um, so, all right. So, if you have other questions, feel free to communicate them with me. Uh, I'm going to just close us in prayer and invite the worship team up, and then w after another uh, song, we'll have a time of communion. Father God, 
um, thank you for the love of your son that is, in essence, your love because you are one. And yet, you sent him to demonstrate to us what love looks like in real time. And by his blood, you have included us in your eternal family, even in the midst of sickness and sorrow and pain and loss. You are present, and that, that corner of your kingdom is pulled down to earth in each of our hearts where we can experience your love, your grace, your light, even in the midst of darkness. Lord, we thank you that your word is at times difficult and yet so simple that at the end of the day, you want us to know that you love us, that we belong to you, and that no one can snatch us away from your eternal loving hand. Lord, help us to abide there in the strength of your grasp, in knowing that you've got this, that we can have faith in something that transcends this life, that you have connected us not only to eternity, but to each other, so that we can catch glimpses of who you are through the one another of being part of your church. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lead us to a deeper understanding of how much you love us through abiding in the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.